I'm Jack. I'm a compulsive reader. I'm supposed to thank Alex for asking me. Thank you. Um, God, this is so uncomfortable. I said to Alex before the meeting, it's one thing to you know stand up and tell jokes. Uh, <laughs> see, I'm good. At I get responsibility on nothing. But uh, it's another thing to get up and tell the truth, and uh, you know that's a little harder for me. And um, so I'll, I'll, I'll try to do my best today. Um, I've been in the organization for 37 years, and um, this is one of the rooms. I think this is one of the rooms that was used fairly regularly when I got here in 1982. It's a place near and dear to my heart. I actually have a picture of me at about seven or eight years old holding a baseball bat at the park right over there. And I think we did Woodcraft Rangers in this room, which was like a um, Boy Scouts, Cub Scouts light. It was uh, you know, for people. I know it was a weird little offset of something, but I actually was in this room back in I don't know, the late 50s. Um, I grew up about a mile and a half from here, and um, I think I was unconscious from the moment I was born. And uh, all, everything became about how to live in the world while maintaining being in a coma. And um, I didn't realize that. I think I was born that way. Uh, something about just sitting and being was impossible. And what I learned over the years was I experienced a lot of systemic angst family angst in my house but this was like from another planet it was like the twilight zone because on the outside we were so boringly conventional my dad was a CPA and I love saying I'm the adult child of a Jewish accountant it gets me a lot of empathy and compassion and oh I'm so sorry to hear that Um, um, my mom was a housewife of the 50s uh, my sister, I think, got short shrift because I was first, I was male, and I was big in many ways. Um, so she got small and quiet, and she was thin and uh, pretty. And, you know, I learned the piano, and she didn't. And I, I finished Hebrew school, and she didn't. And I was, uh, I got a lot of attention, and she didn't. Uh, we're very close now, uh, but uh, that's a long story. It was very boring, normal family, except for no matter what I was doing, I was always thinking about food. And I didn't even realize, I knew something was wrong. In retrospect, the most, the closest I can, I've, I've heard in these rooms is somebody who was gay and knew, knew it early and couldn't talk about it and they knew they were wrong and bad, but they couldn't talk about that. And they knew they were supposed to, I don't know if they were a, a guy, date girls, but they couldn't do that. And there was something wrong with their insides and their outsides. And the culture and the surroundings and the family liked the outsides and promoted the outsides. But the inside, nobody cared about, nobody knew about. I was a fat little kid. I was uh, 30 pounds overweight by the time I graduated elementary school over by uh, uh, the Grove. Um, and I always stood out. Maybe worse. Maybe I was worse in my own head than I really was. But I was in the top two of every class. I was like the second fattest. John was always heavier. John Henderson, poor guy. Um, and I went to John Burroughs Junior High School over there, and I continued to my status as about second fattest in the class. Just bad enough to get a lot of flack. Just bad enough to be uncomfortable in PE. The PE stories, I, I assume they're just as bad for girls, but, but for boys they were horrendous. And uh, wait a minute, if any of you watch, there's a TV show called Young Something, and there's a little boy in the show who's very neuro- grows up to be a very neurotic adult. 
and there's another show where he's in. And apparently, I saw a few minutes of it this last week. He was supposed to go the next day for a swimming test. Now, when I saw that, I told my wife, I don't even know what it's about, but it's probably because he has a little scrawny body because he's younger than all the other kids. And he probably feels embarrassed. Turns out he was neurotic about the water and there's pollutants in the pool and all this nonsense. But every single day where I had to perform, especially physical stuff, any of the PE stuff in elementary school, climbing the bars, that kind of shit, stuff, um, elementary, uh, uh, middle school with the, with the running, the laps, they put us all in, by, by middle school, they put us in corrective PE. Corrective PE was sanctioned bullying and abuse and garbage by PE coaches who were men's men and us. And this faction was mentally, physically, spiritually, emotionally broken people. They were the ones that were off. They were special. And then anybody who like, broke a leg or was too fat to run laps. And they put us all in the corner and they left us be and they hoped that we didn't hurt ourselves or hurt anybody else in the process of an hour of PE. And that's not good for self-esteem. Um, I graduated at the end. I went to high school. And again, nothing unusual. Boring mediocrity. My dad worked for the Defense Department. He was an accountant. And then one day, not literally, but one day my mom was there and the next day she was dead. And I didn't want to play it up, but she died on Mother's Day in my first semester in high school. And I survived, my dad survived, my sister survived, but food, is, in fact, one of the few memories I have was I didn't have clothes to wear for the next week because I was always riding on the edge of not having enough clothes because nothing fit, I hated clothes shopping, and it was just a horrendous experience. So the next door neighbor lady, I remember, had to take me, and I remember the pants. I was 14 years old. I remember the, the material of the pants. It was just so traumatic getting into sizes that did not look good. They never looked good. And if you went to the big men shop, these little putsy guys were trying to convince you that you look good in the stripes or the, the right color. These absurd shirts that, that no self-respecting normal sized person would buy trying to convince you you look just like everybody else, but even better with your big feet. And so uh, I continued to eat, graduated high school, unconscious still. And when I hit UCLA, uh, my first quarter, I was 305 pounds. So I, I took it from marginally obese, hear this shit, go on Weight Watchers, uh, catch some flack, be made fun of, to a whole new sphere of crap. I mean, when you're, when you're, I know 300 is not a magical number, but when you get above there, you, I, my world is just very, very different. You get looked at differently, you get treated differently, it's built in that you're going to be made fun of. It just, anyway, to cut to the chase, I was on every diet, I was on diet pills, I was on Weight Watchers a few times, and I can't live a half a slice of toast, a half a grapefruit, and a hard boiled egg now, or I'll throw up. Um, I went to UCLA. I graduated in three years because I was in a hurry. Uh, I know not to where I was going, but I was in a hurry to get there. And I did lose 100 pounds. I lost 100 pounds in, I don't know, six months, eight months. And uh, literally, the story is the same. I got a new girlfriend, a new car, uh, a new briefcase, and a new suit. No symptom. No problem. And my dad being an accountant, very bottom line is, he didn't see the symptom anymore. He was thrilled. We didn't know it was a disease. You're okay now. You, you outgrew your, your, your phase you're going through or whatever. And then I got to law school, the obligatory next step for people of my uh, background. And uh, it's the 11th commandment in actually some, some factions of the Jewish uh, uh, community. And so I went to law school and I took up drinking and Valium, which I was stealing from my father 
who was still stealing them from my mother's prescriptions and my mom had been dead for years and, and I gained back 100 pounds and the demoralization the, uh, I was driving somewhere with John last week and he asked me about the, the place the venue of the story of how, what length I was willing to go in the 70s, they opened up a, a fat burger on La Cienica by where Lomans used to be, that weird, strange intersection. And I go there at night and I was petrified because the only people that were out there at night were scary to me for a lot of reasons. But I wasn't going to not go there. I mean, that was out of the question. So I started developing a, a, a twitch. I mean, I didn't really develop a twitch. I just developed a twitch. And I started talking to myself. And I found that if you talk to yourself and you twitch, and you're 300 pounds, People don't bother you. They don't, they don't approach you. Nobody asked for my money. Nobody asked for my french fries. They didn't ask for how, how's your day. They just gave it to me and watched me leave. And I wasn't scared anymore. I mean, it gave me superpowers. It was amazing. French fries gave me superpowers. Um, and my whole life was built around that. My dad, I would go out at night. The LA Times used to have uh, a morning edition. And with my dad and I, my dad was even worse of a jokester than I and we would joke about it's, you should get the 10 o'clock edition of the next day's newspaper because you'll be one of the first people to know what's going to happen tomorrow and so I went and claimed that I was going to learn about tomorrow's news tonight and I'd sit at Norm's on La Cienica and order my food to go for the long ride home for five, four or five minutes but I couldn't sit I couldn't sit and wait I was too anxious so I remember ordering always a Coke maybe a Diet Coke and a piece of pie just to get me through while they made the french fries. And in 1976, they had the bicentennial special, $1.76. I mean, a lot of food. So the way I lived, from place to place to place. Went to law school, that didn't work. Um, well, I sold life insurance because I had a big mouth and I'm Jewish and I know a lot of people. So they convinced me I was going to be a good insurance salesman. I failed out of that very, very quickly. Four and a half years, I made nothing, no money, no nothing. And then I was down. I was done. I was fried. I ran out of gas. I said the elasticity of my skin and my tolerance had just reached an end. I was also all throughout this time very quietly wanting to kill myself. And uh, I, I had it planned. I wasn't. Guns are too messy and obnoxious. But I was going to jump off a building. And I literally spent time driving through mostly Century City, trying to figure out how do people jump out of windows on tall buildings when the windows don't open. And I, you know, I had to come up with a plan for the secretarial chair out the window. And I mean, it was pathetic. And again, my dad is happy. My sister is happy. Everybody's happy. And I'm dying. Um, I called a friend of mine in 1980, probably the end of 81. And she was my, my manager in the insurance business. And I said, what do I do? I can't do this anymore. I can't go on another diet. I can't do it. She didn't understand, but she had just heard about Overeaters Anonymous like that week from a woman friend who heard about Alcoholics Anonymous from somebody else and then heard about OA and Betty told me about this organization and I probably called information and got a phone number. And I walked into Beverly Hills High School so uncomfortable on Monday night, January 5th of 82. And it was a, just a meeting. It was, they put it like the uh, teacher's dining room. So there were round tables people sat at. Uh, one of the biggest going on in 1982 was you're leaving for Houston. And uh, uh, I heard people talk. Uh, I heard Carol. I heard a lot of people talk. 
The first meeting was a guy that I'm still friends with 37 years later. He's not in the program. He's a friggin' lunatic. Uh, but we talk often. And we talk program. We actually talk program often. We still are connected. Our first sponsor is in town from Minnesota. And we're probably going to see him this week. And I found something. And I'd always gone to organizations, especially after my mom died. I went to this thing called Habonim, Jewish this, Jewish Singles Group. I was in bowling league. I always needed like a family thing. Um, when I came here, it was very seductive in a, in a mysterious way. Uh, the people were nice and they seemed sincere. Um, I was skeptical and cynical and didn't want to be there. And everybody's nice. Uh, people gave me their phone number. They said, let's get the coffee. And there was an energy back in 82 that was rather incredible. And what happened was, we literally, the same people, they said, come back tomorrow. So the same room, the next night, virtually the same, almost about this many people. And another speaker. Uh, and again, they, they were fun also. The speaker said, uh, uh, get somebody who has what you want for your sponsor. I remember hearing that the first day. And I picked him because he was male, funny, uh, reasonably normal size, and had been morbidly obese. That was my sole criteria. I uh, came back the next day, met some more nice people, and then somebody said, Wednesday, tomorrow, you've got to go to uh, 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 Palms Park. And I'm sure Jerry and Arlene were there because they've been there every Wednesday for like 82 years. And I went there, and it was a different energy, but just as captivating. And then the next night was even more meaningful. The federal building used to have the 100-pounders meeting. And it was this humongous room at the base of the federal building. And I met the nicest group of people, many of whom were morbidly obese. The, first, the, the, the one I remember the most, I sponsored for years after that, Manny's long gone, but he was so charismatic and so personable and so warm and weighed 600 pounds. And he had a girlfriend, and the two of them had lots of friends in program, and what I saw was fellowship and a shitload of service. These people, whether they were thin or fat or abstaining or not, they were on every damn committee. They were doing something program related every night. It gave their life purpose, and it was so uh, inviting for the rest of us to see people participating in, in, in this organization. Friday night, we went to Cedar Sinai, and even in the beginning, I thought, here's another joke I can make. I thought, they let us in for the meeting at Cedar Sinai at the Skype unit, and I was always worried that they wouldn't let us out at the end of the meeting because uh, uh, we were loony but it was great speakers two speaker meeting uh, uh, five years and ten years requirement of abstinence so these were quality speakers when I first came in we did, I was at the very tail end of that beginning when the speakers were uh, AA people because OA didn't have any history OA didn't have any time if OA 60 now they had been around 20 years but it was very it was primitive compared to AA but we used all their literature and um and for the first time, it legitimized my female disease because the only people I knew that were fat, were, I mean, not the only people, but the ones that I mostly knew that were fat were, were women. And it was embarrassing. Real men are alcoholics. Real men are addicts. Real men are, I don't know what. But, you know, I just, uh, as Steve M. would say, I make I, I, I comfort with, I'm a friend of Bill Wilson's sister. <laughs> so, but, I mean, it's just, I, I go to meetings, and they had done a survey in the late 70s National survey, I think it was like 89% women in the country. And so, yeah, this didn't help my sense of masculinity either. There were like me and Gary and Mario and 
you know, 14 gay guys and all the rest women. And, um, you know, I still kept coming back because especially at the 100 Pounders meeting, what I heard was people talking about all the embarrassing things that I had done, but they held their head high. Uh, they already were living in the promises of not regretting the past. I mean, it was, I, I, I couldn't quite believe that it was real, but it was. And then Saturday morning, we all went to what was then called the maintainers meeting, which had just started. It was a break off of some other meeting, and you had to have 21 days of abstinence and within 10 pounds of gold weight. And um, so the people who spoke you know, were all you know, somewhat saner than the people who didn't speak. I mean, that, that's about all. And 21 days is not, 21 days doesn't guarantee much. Um, if you ask my sponsor, it's about the 10 or 20 or 30 year mark that you start waking up. But I went, and then Sunday, we all went to Surrender Sunday. And for me, again, I asked three guys, well, how does this program work? And I don't know if this will be any, as helpful to you or confusing like it was to me. One guy said, you work the 12 steps and your life will change. Damn it, I had no idea what he was talking about. Uh, the other guy said, get your food in order and your life will change. And that seemed really romantic and exciting, but if I could do that, I wouldn't have come here. And the other one, the hardest one was, get right with God. And, you know, thank you, Richie, but I had no idea what he was talking about, and what I thought I understood, I didn't like. So I just kept coming back because the people were nice. That's all. I lied through my teeth to my sponsor. I told him what I was eating, and somehow I clicked into that other part of the disease. I hit my goal weight of 185. I was almost six feet tall then. Uh, I hit 175, I liked it. I hit 165, I liked it more. I got into the 150s at 6 feet tall, and I looked like shit. I felt like shit, but I was thin. And that's all that really mattered to me. Okay, so, I went through all that bullshit, so I have a plan never left. If nothing else, I was grabbed by the energy of the program, and fortuitously, never wanted to leave. So I got a sponsor for six years, had a sponsor for six more years, having my third sponsor now for whatever that is, 20-something years, and I've still never left and I've never wanted to. And the po- So we went through the steps each time, and each time I've done it, and now I'm in another 12-step program. I'm in graduate school, apparently, and um, uh, the steps are the similar steps, and each time I work on the steps, uh, I see my powerlessness. Getting married had me really see my powerlessness. Having a dog that we thought was dying really had me see my powerlessness. My dad getting sick uh, seven years ago uh, and then dying uh, really saw my powerlessness. Um, my ex, my first wife, my ex-wife, uh, telling me one day she wanted to not be married anymore. I saw my powerlessness. I had a cancer scare 20-something years ago and I was told, you know, get your affairs in order. You're probably dying or maybe you're not. Um, and I didn't. Um, but I saw powerlessness and I've come to believe in I don't know, something. I wrestle with this all the time as I don't have a clear conception. And um, I'll, answer, I'll probably answer Carol's question when he asks it, but um, um, if I call him. Um, but I've come to know a source of information somewhere, the universe inside me somewhere, that when I access it, allows me to function at a higher level than I've ever functioned before. And the older I get, I don't know if it's more program or just more life, I'm making better decisions. I'm making actually better decisions about my food today. I'm making my relationships are good today. Anyway, fourth step to the steps. Look at the fourth step. I did. You got to do it. Nobody likes it. Everybody complains about it. It's really not that bad, and then it's over. And the fifth step is just for me getting close to somebody who now knows everything about me and likes me anyway, which is really cool. Um, the God steps of six and seven praying to have somebody's character defects. I still get to do it in my Al-Anon program. 
So, I mean, you take away the food, and what's left are the issues. And the issues get addressed in the other program, in the outside you know, tool of, of therapy, wherever it gets addressed. Um, I've made lists of people I've, had a, I've harmed. I've cleaned up to the best of my ability. My mom's was an unusual one, but she was already long gone. My dad and I, though we struggled a lot during the first years of my life and the first years of the program, we were virtually best friends by the time he died. Uh, I did a eulogy for him when he died. And the whole, the whole, my, I, I talked to him most days. I miss him every day. And my relationship over the years, over the last seven years since he's gone, I only had good memories. And when I first got here, uh, I wasn't thinking how to He didn't change. He didn't change. He was, he was a good guy in the beginning. He was a good guy at the end. Um, I do review my day. The, the, the easiest context for me, I work alone. I don't have much family. I'm not in touch with too many aunts or uncles. I've got a sister. But I don't have a lot of family, and I don't have uh, work co-workers. So the only context that my character defects get to come, not the only, but the, the main place, is in my marriage. And um, every day, it's, uh, I, think, I think I heard it from Don, uh, you can't stay clean today on yesterday's shower. So no matter what I did do yesterday, it doesn't even matter. When I start today, first of all, I have another opportunity to screw up. But thank God, another opportunity to clean it up. And I've had some experiences. And for some reason, I have most of my biggest fights in bowling alleys. I got beat up a couple times as kids in bowling. When I first uh, liked bowling, uh, my mom had just died and somebody made a bad comment about my mom not knowing. And I grabbed him by the collar. And I was such a wuss. The fact that I had the, the wherewithal to grab somebody by the collar is a miracle in and of itself. But I grabbed this guy and I picked up a glass ashtray. And I tried to merge the two. And somebody caught my hand. And my life may have been very different, but I get energized in bowling alleys. And so I've had some really ugly uh, arguments with people over the years. And the last three, which has been like the last five or six years, somewhere in the middle of the argument or immediately thereafter, something just came over me. And when I had a really weird argument. This guy was so wrong and so off the wall and so obnoxious. And he's a friend of mine. And the second I got into my car, I was going to call my wife and I said, wait a minute. I picked up the phone and I said, I called him. I said, Gary, and I said, I'd like to apologize. My reaction to you, I didn't say what I wanted to say, which was your bullshit, inaccurate, condescending, judgmental crap. That's what I wanted to say. So I said, my reaction to you is totally out of line and overblown and I'm really sorry. And he said, yeah, you know what, me too. And I said, have a good week. He said, thanks for calling and it was done. And it felt really nice. I would normally stew on that one for a long time. I'm sure the questions will address all the other stuff, but if you're new, all I can say is please keep coming back. The program is miraculous, and uh, it's, it, it's made my, changed my life as an understatement. It's made my life, and for that I'm very grateful. Thanks. Thank This is the time for questions only. There's no sharing at this meeting. If you need to share, please do so with any of us after the meeting. Also, please remember that the opinions of the leaders are, um, is my, uh, my opinions are my own and not those of Overeaters Anonymous as a whole. When asking questions, you need not identify yourself. Please remember, if you ask a question, your voice may be audible on the OA podcast. And I will restate the question um, if I remember to. Uh, question, uh, questions end at uh, 9.50. No, five minutes. Five minutes early? Oh, it's election day. Okay, so we end at 9.45. Adam. Jack, thank you. So you mentioned about how when you first came in, you got three minutes on what to do, whether you should clean up your food or 
for the steps. I got very, very lucky because everybody told me. The question was: Is of the three opinions I got when I first came in, what did I do with the uh, inherent conflict in that? Somehow, I was blessed with the acceptance of the dichotomy of the three, and could only go the route I could go. I could not immediately get right by God. That to me. I didn't pursue it. I didn't ask what, you, what do you mean? Because the whole notion of God then, even though I was a reasonably devout Jew when I came in, and I'm a more devout Jew now, uh, reconnected, not reconnected, but uh, up the ante on my connection with my Judaism, but to get right by God made no sense, and I had no internal desire to, to, to further explore that. And then I made it okay that working the steps was going to be a process and a lengthy one. And it didn't seem like I need. Uh, I mean, I'm. Uh, I think the, uh, there's outside literature that talks about uh, children and addicts unable to delay gratification, and the idea of waiting for 12 steps. And from what I heard, how long that take? Uh, I'd be dead before I got there. But getting my food in order seemed like you guys were going to legitimize me going on a different, better, saner, something or diet. And that I could do. And at my first meeting, I wrote down. I, I used to carry, just as I was insecure, I carried like a notebook wherever I went. I looked important. It's my notebook. And I wrote down on this little thing, three meals a day, nothing in between, no sugar, no alcohol, no fried foods, no nuts. And now, now, that's exactly the way I eat still. Uh, there was a time when I added bad nuts, bad nuts, but I don't eat sugar, uh, and I don't get into the, 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 uh, the number on the thing. I, 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 you know, I was a good Weight Watchers guy. I knew not to eat ketchup. I knew not to eat ketchup. Mustard on anything. <coughs> Breakfast cereal, anything. You can't eat ketchup. And I didn't. It was fun. But I was nuts with the food. I mean, the good news is it worked. The bad news is I was crazy. Tilly Lewis diet salad dressing in packets in the box in the glove compartment of my car. Um, an apple at all times in the glove compartment of my car. If I ever got stuck in my car, I'd be fine. I mean, I just you know, the I don't know, forget the AAA number. I had my apple in my salad dressing. Um, I had a car accident twice coming out of the thinnery. For any of you those old enough to remember the diet, uh, diet ice cream dessert place, and it's because this became more important than looking where I was driving. And I stuck my nose out about six inches into Ventura Boulevard on a rainy night in November, and some car creamed me. And all I cared about was setting down the ice cream cone on its still solid cone. And when I came back, the cone was there, and I picked it up, but the bottom had melted. The ice cream's on the floor, but at least I had the cone. With the <laughs> uh, so so I, I, I still focused on the food, and I liked to vary on a regular basis what I was eating because I wanted to get down. I don't know. Jerry's line used to be his goal weight was his birth weight. And so I wanted to get down. And so that's what I did. But I never left. And I, I, I didn't quit before the miracle. Because I didn't want to. But a lot of people come here and I know I see it every, every week. They're intimidated. They're scared. They're embarrassed. They're ashamed. They're whatever. And then they don't come back. And I don't blame them. But the miracle is I, I can't take any credit per se is that I never left. And then over time I realized the steps that is going to be the steps are going to be my solution. And then working the steps has been a big thing. And then in my current sponsorship of 25 years, I realized it's not even that. 
it really is a, a relationship with a higher power. You get a daily reprieve predicated upon keeping a fit spiritual condition. And so, though that's not my lead suit, I'd rather just be a diet and therapy, uh, or maybe a fourth step. Uh, not if I'm going to talk to my sponsor in either program. I'm going to hear that God is the solution. Uh, before I thought food was the problem, then it converted to food is the uh, the symptom, and then now food is the was the uh, solution. But uh, working the program and uh, working the steps, especially the God steps, whatever that may mean, um, to me has been my salvation. So, thanks, Carol. Uh, thanks for sharing, Jack. Because, do this distinctly. Um, I find myself allowing myself, or I'm powerless of it, uh, having outside stuff dictate my mood. Either I'm giddy and I'm happy, or I'm down and depressed. And I'm wondering if that, you know, if that gets better as you go on, and, and if that happens to you anymore, what, what you do, what steps or tools you do to sort of counteract that is just about surrender. The best I can relate to that is for the first few years after my first two sponsors, so year 13 on, part of my share would include all I ever wanted was to feel normal, have a normal body size, have a, a, a own a home, and be happy there. And then I've got all this. And all along I was being busted by uh, old timers because they said my focus was in the wrong place. And I thought all I wanted was to be normal and married have a house, have a car, and not be worried about my weight. And when I attained all that, I thought I had arrived. And then the, the elders of the program, who had the courage to come up to me and burst my bubble, reminded me that um, no outside thing is going to make it or, or have the power to make it or break it. And then I merged it with my limited religious studies, and I equated it to false idols. And I really got very comfortable with the notion of the false. Now, the truth is, when I made more money, it opened up a lot of doors. And that was fine. Uh, I love having a home. I love being married. But the truth is, that's just the fluff. I mean, I love the stupid shirts I wear. But, you know, uh, after the first two weeks, you know, Bob and Thor would forget that I ever used to wear it if I stopped wearing it. They don't. They, they don't make me, they don't define me. I like them. But it was really hard to not be adversely affected. The steps were a lot of surrender, third step, acknowledging powerlessness. I, I, I'm powerless over the friends. Of, when I went to law school, those guys are now all wealthy and retired. Because they got licensed in 76 to practice law. And I didn't get licensed in psychology in 88. 12 years. So these guys have a 12-year lead on me in an industry which makes them more money. And they're all retired in their second home in Aspen. Well, not all of them, but in my fantasy, all of them. So they're all in Europe. They're all wealthy. They have 75 grandchildren. And life could not be better. And I get jealous with them. But you know what? My life is perfect. And I don't have that. And my life is perfect. And if I forget that, there's plenty of people I will call today that will remind me about what's important. My sponsor being only one. But if I call the kind of people I would talk to today, they're not going to confirm my bullshit. They're going to confirm that where's God in all this? Where's my surrender? Uh, which character defect is involved? And how am I going to play six and seven and have those removed? What actions am I going to take to implement it? How am I going to make living amends to myself 
which includes changing my behavior. I mean, it's inherent in making amends to you that I have to change my behavior. But I never realized until I got both older, chronologically and older in this program, that to make amends to myself, I have to change my behaviors. My eating has gotten cleaner now, which is bizarre. I have a food sponsor now. I've written every bite I've eaten probably in six or seven years from the day it hit me, I need a food sponsor. I haven't missed one bite or one meal, good, bad, or otherwise. And why? Because that's making amends to myself, having responsibility, uh, structure, uh, and having another human being know what's going on. I don't talk to my sponsor as much. In five years, when he suggested I call him every day, or six days, and I did. And now, I check in more with myself, and a few times we talk, they'll ask me if things are okay, and the last time, I was floored with my answer, which was, yeah which is bizarre. So I think time, patience, self-gentility, a lot of third steps surrender, and remembering that God, God wants the best for me despite sometimes evidence which I choose to believe would indicate otherwise. And that's arrogance on my part and ego. So. Um, I'm curious about the Thank you. How did I come back from that seduction of losing more and more weight? I had a, a, a sober experience. I got down to 158. I was volunteering and just getting hired in an eating disorder program. And they sent me to take a, a driving test. I had to take the test class 2, 4, 8 when you're driving a van for the patients. So I go to some doctor, some forgotten doctor in in uh, San Pedro and he does the physical which was just a check, 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 check and he said at the end of it I can't okay you and I thought he was kidding because I was skinny I had nothing inherently wrong I was 32 years old no heart no, no cancer no power problems nothing he said you have upper body muscle mass deterioration he said whatever you're eating or not eating your upper body is beginning to eat itself so your, your muscles are uh, like the Karen Carpenter thing with the heart so I said well what do you want me to do and he said uh, eat liver eat more red meat gain five pounds and exercise well eat more you got to be kidding me I mean <laughs> that now is offset by 8,000 times being told to eat less and, but I wanted the job so I gained five pounds. So I've been at, I probably weigh about 190 now. But I've hovered at 180, 185 for 20 years, and now 190 for the last five or 10. What I was asked was, what's really er going on when the number on the scale... Be- oh, real quick, scales. When I got to this program, I owned two. I weighed myself every day, many times, on both of them. And either one, depending on the mood I was in, the lower weight sometimes validated me, but sometimes the higher weight proved what a piece of shit I was. And one, and I, and people were sick of hearing about me and my fucking scales. So one day, I went on my morning walk in Santa Monica. I lived on 9th in the Wilshire area, Arizona. And I took two scales and put them in a shopping bag. And I dropped them off in the dumpster on the alley behind 9th Street. And I go on my morning walk. And as I'm getting back, little by little, I'm starting to hear in my head, you wouldn't hesitate to get food out of the trash dumpster. What are you going like, worry about dirt on your scale? And I go in the dumpster from my half hour walk and the sanitation department at Santa Monica had come and by both my fucking scales were gone. I was flabbergasted. I don't have a scale. My wife has a scale that I've never been on and I think I probably weigh myself now about, I'll say every two or three years. 
I go to the doctor, he already knows. I'm not getting on a scale, or maybe four years ago I said, I'll get on a scale, don't tell me. But, um, but when I'm worried about that, the bigger question is, what the hell is really going on? And this, this number on the scale is not going to make, it better not make or break me as eating a food I don't eat. Better not. If my life was so empty that whether I eat that brownie or not is going to make me happy or not, it's a pretty, kind of a pretty pathetic commentary on my life. And today I know that. So, yeah, thanks. Is that all? Thank you guys for letting me